I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I am so excited to have Jessica Brooks here with me on on the show. She's the CEO and executive director of the Pittsburgh Business Group on Health and so many other incredible organizations that I'm going to chat about during the, the episode. So I won't get into too much of that. But Jessica, thank you so, so much for being here with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited also. Really, really, it's been a pleasure to get to to know you and I'm really excited about your work. All right, great. Well, also uh, a shout out to our our, our, um, Dr. Tony Haley, MD, who is uh, a common friend who connected us, who is herself an incredible woman, uh, has been on the show previously. And um, yeah, so let's get started. So, So what you, you have like a, a, a day job, you have your, your, your Pittsburgh group on health, a Pittsburgh business group, business group on health, but you have so many other things that you do. You're the, you're, you're just changing the world in so many ways. So I think what you do with the Pittsburgh business group on health is super interesting, but maybe today we can talk a little bit about some of the other work you're doing in the, in the anti-racist space um, and in the health arena um, to help increase equity. So, so talk about what you do. Sure, happy to. In addition to that, uh, mother of four and wife. So at any time, just know <laughs> you may get, get an experience of my full life um, here. Uh, so yeah, so I'll actually talk about PBGH because um, the Pittsburgh Business Group of Health, other, uh, known as PBGH as well, uh, because it all connects. Um, everything that I do I bring my full self into that and my full self includes being a black woman in America, right? So I've been leading the Pittsburgh Business Group on Health now for seven years. Uh, We're a healthcare employer coalition. Uh, So our core mission is to coalesce and convene and engage employers to be the most empowered purchasers of healthcare to transform healthcare in a way that's um, value-based, high quality, affordable, efficient, and transparent um, in a sustainable way that enables the largest purchaser of healthcare, which are employers, over 160 million lives um, collectively, to continue to offer benefits and uh, create an accountable healthcare system that actually works for the people. So that's what I do every single day. Um, Coming into 2020 with all the unforeseen um, events that 2020 would offer, we um, in the Pittsburgh area had a report that came out, a race and gender equity report that the University of Pittsburgh, a sociologist and several researchers of the University of Pittsburgh conducted, which was commissioned by the city of Pittsburgh. And the outcomes of that report um, were staggering, not surprising to many of us in the black community. However, to see it in black and white, to see the disparities in poverty, um, employment, income, education, and health um, being some of the worst in the country. And um, so the the pay gap, some of the worst in the country. Um, Black women in particular, uh, it was basically an outcome of that was this is the worst place in America of any comparable city to be a black woman 
and live in. And if you packed up your family, if I left today and moved to a comparable city, the likelihood of my quality of life increasing would be very high. Wow. And so that call to action was, was something that I could not be a black woman leader of this organization and not, you know, do something about. There's just no way that, that my silence would not be acceptable. Um, and exact, it would be harmful. And that's exactly the opposite of our mission at PBGH. So we honed in more on the health side uh, of it and uh, the maternal mortality rates for black women, our infant mortality rates um, significantly high, cancer for uh, black women, cardiovascular disease for black men and women. Um, you go down on several uh, lists of chronic conditions and um, mortality and morbidity issues, and it was, was significantly different for Black people in this region. Mm -hmm. So we took that insight, brought it to our, my board of directors, and just painted the picture of if you, you know, we employ millions of people, or collectively our coalition covers two million lives, including employees and families. Um, and if you have, you're in your office, you have your Black mom in a cube, and she's nine months pregnant, and your white mom in a cube next to her, same floor in Pittsburgh, the likelihood of your black mom coming back alive is much less than your white mom coming back from maternity leave, you know, and actually being able to have the opportunity of having maternity leave, right? Black mom may not come home and leave the hospital alive. Um, same benefits, we're paying the same amount. In fact, we're paying more for, for complications. We're paying more for death. And um, so, you know, when you put it that way, they're like, no, that's not acceptable, you know, when I think of as an employer doing benefits, I don't, I don't think of how I need to navigate that differently for my back black population, right, or my white population. And this time that we're in post George Floyd has basically led credibility to our movement to come into this work of leading around health equity and focusing on it um, with um, black maternal, maternal mortality as a focus. So that's what I, I, you know, one of the things coming into 2020 before the pandemic, before the murder of George Floyd, we at PBGH have been focused on, on how do we help the business community understand their responsibility in ensuring equity um, in health when they provide and spend billions of dollars in, on benefits collectively. So important. So, I mean, it's such a huge industry and it can be, I, I can imagine it can be molded in so many different ways. And if you don't have someone socially responsible or an organization, responsibly molding it, I can see it being, it, it, I mean, it already has the potential or is, can be very harmful. Um, so that's, it's the work that you all are doing is amazing. And I wonder if you'd be willing to share your story that you told on that, the panel. I, I know you, the um, P, uh, PBGH has done a series of panels about racism in healthcare and you shared your own experience um, when you were giving birth, is that is that something you feel comfortable sharing here, and in, in terms of making this really real for the people who who listen? Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. And actually, um, the panel was um, so PBGH is a member of the National Alliance of Healthcare Purchaser Coalitions, which are coalitions across the country. Um, and so, the National Alliance, which I sit on the board of, has been leading these race, health, and equity town halls, which uh, Jill, you were a part of. And um, thank you for. For being a part of that. So I've been asked to help lead it um, for a variety of reasons because I've been speaking on this and we came in already with this on our agenda um, prior to the pandemic and seeing the disparities around that 
but also because I'm the only black coalition leader across the country um, that, you know, is a member of the National Alliance. Mm-hmm. And so I have a unique uh, and obviously a direct voice in this. And, um, uh, and so anyway, yeah, so that's kind of what we've been doing and responding and being very responsive, which I'm very proud of. And I've been sharing my story around um, my birth, birthing experiences um, since uh, for about three years, right? So it was kind of like this brave thing. I was asked um, by uh, someone I had hired to help me with my speaking. And she had me dig a little deeper as to why I even lead the coalition. Like why, why is it important for me to be in healthcare? And what were my earlier experiences that kind of shaped um, my passion around it. Mm-hmm. And so she made me kind of like break down, it felt like a therapy session. And I, and I kind of went through some of my experiences and, you know, my most, um, you know, most of the, my one, most defining and significant moments in my life was, you know, when I was 24, I found out I was pregnant and I was working for a defense contractor away from my family out of state. And, um, it was scary. It was just, I was a single mom at the time. A lot of that was just a, a big, big change in my life. I just started my career after graduating from school. And, um, but at the same time, it was the most important thing I, in, in my life that was happening. And so um, my care experience throughout that time was um, not very comfortable. You know, I felt um, a level of like, I was another statistic walking through the door every time I went to the doctor's office. And how I was treated, kind of the air, um, even from like getting your insurance cards at the receptionist desk. Um, and um, not necessarily being um, listened to uh, when I shared certain things. Um, but, you know, I kind of brushed it off. You know, it was my first time. I didn't know if it was normal or abnormal, um, but I felt it. You know, it was a feeling, but something I couldn't really pinpoint. And then um, I was uh, on my due date. It was really important for me in my life to have a natural birth if I could. Um, my sister had had previous C-sections and, um, and I just, it was important for me to be able to, to have my baby natural if I could. Mm-hmm. And so when I was told on my last appointment on my due date that I needed to go be induced um, because my blood pressure was slightly elevated that it, I couldn't wait another day and I had to go in that night, it was devastating. So I went in that night because I knew enough, although I wasn't in healthcare yet, I was in defense, I knew um, my health literacy was to the point where I knew that inductions um, could lead to a C-section at a higher rate than not being induced, right? So I was just, um, you know, emotionally distraught about the outcomes of my care plan and um, being followed through. So nonetheless, after 13 hours of labor, um, no meds, induced labor, I was told, hey, nothing's going to happen um, and you'll be able to, um, you have to go have a C-section basically. There's no choice, like this isn't going to happen for you. Uh, And so I'm brought into that room and ultimately once they numbed me, they strapped my arms down um, to the bed. I'm vomiting, my blood pressure's dropping. Uh, Basically all I hear my sister saying is she dying um, and I never heard a response back to her. But next thing you know, my, Jesse was there and um, he was alive and, and so was I. Um, after that, um, the treatment that I was received in the hospital was not great at all. I was being blamed for my baby losing weight when I was trying to nurse him. So my thing was, you know, it was important for me if I couldn't, now I couldn't have him natural, 
but at least let me, you know, I want to be able to nurse. I want to be able to do that. It was important to me and very, very basically mean um, to me. And, and I ended up leaving there basically um, depressed. I, I've suffered through postpartum depression and I attribute a lot of that through the experience um, that I had, especially postpartum um, right before. And then I've learned, oh, wait, it's natural for the babies to lose 10% of their body weight. But I was being told that I was doing it. I was killing them. And um, it just did something to me. So I, that was one uh, treatment experience. My last um, birthing experience with the last child, um, I've had, I have four. So each one has had their series of trauma in my delivery experience. But the, so the last one I came in already really, you know, just nervous. I knew it had to be a C-section. And I was told, and I was pretty hysterical um, as they were trying to numb me. Um, and I was told by the anesthesiologist that I had once before that she believed I had post-traumatic stress disorder right before they even numbed me. And, and then she left and told my husband that she believed I had post-traumatic stress disorder. And then I never heard from them again. I mean, I had my baby, um, but for, to get a diagnosis like that and then to never be followed up on, with after delivery have been a couple of the experiences that I've had um, through my birthing experience. Um, in the middle of that, I was asked um, with my third child, you didn't know I had this many stories, mm-hmm. that if my husband was the father of my first child. And I was like, it was in a regular doctor's appointment, just like my six month checkup. And, you know, doctors rotate, so you get different ones. And, and this doctor asked if um, my child was, like, if, my ch- if Marlon, my husband, was the father of all my children. And I said, well, what does that have to do with anything? And then she gave me this answer, like, oh, it matters biologically. It, and, you know, it could, it could have, um, you know, this information that's important for us to know. And so, you know, I still haven't gotten proof of that. But so I, I've asked my counterparts and, no one else has been asked that, my white friends. Um, so anyway, those are a couple of examples. Yeah. And that's like, you're like super well-educated, high, po- you know, powerful, high performing, all the things, but still, and, and that's one of the things with the data is that it's shown that this more um, maternal uh, mortality and, and poor outcomes, it, it goes across all, all classes, all socioeconomic levels. It's not just people who don't have insurance or something like that, which is also really telling, I think. It is, it is. It's a really important point um, because even, especially me serving employers, they need to know this this isn't Jessica Brooks issue. This is an employee of your issue. This isn't, um, you know, the Medicaid health plan issue that's, you know, and the assumptions that you have that come with with that population, which is completely ridiculous and um, racist. But nonetheless, this is your issue. And I do think it's an important message that, um, yeah, your friend, Jessica, is facing the same things as a person you walk past in the grocery store or your cashier. Um, I have the risk of dying in Pittsburgh or across this country because this isn't a Pittsburgh issue. We have a a country maternal mortality issue um, that this doesn't, um, my income and my education won't save me. Yes. Yes. Um, and it's, it's so powerful. And I think hearing your story, uh, it's so easy in this world, particularly with racism. It's so easy to point the finger at other, at other people, at other systems, at other 
classes at other races at other anything else then you're then take the responsibility yourself but hearing a story like you're an executive at this huge company and it happened to you three three you mentioned for three of your pregnancies I, I'm, I'm i would not be surprised if it was all four of them um and that's just during pregnancy much much less all the other times in life that that it's that um that black people are, are facing different treatment Yes, I, I, you know, a real quick story. My son, who's 13, he was 11 at the time, um, went to his pediatrician and the pediatrician said, hey, this is the age we kind of take them, you know, away from parents and check them out, have, kind of have, you know, more private conversations. But if either one of you want to come, please do. So my husband went and they, they checked him and started talking to him about social issues and pressures and um, asked him about, um, marijuana these um and I, it was do you smoke have you ever been asked to smoke marijuana and my son said well what's that and he the doctor said that's a drug that uh black kids um take so i didn't learn about this until after we left the doctor's office and um but i i made a call afterwards and had to educate that doctor but that's you know, that's another example. Wow. That, and that's just like, you can't. And my son didn't even know what it was, Right. <laughs> you know? So, uh, so anyway. Yeah. 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 So there's, there's so much there. So thank you for sharing those, those stories. And I, I love how that I didn't realize that it tied in with your, with the, with the training you were doing for speaking. I think that's, and, and that helped you connect to that. And then I think that makes the message be received so much in so much more powerful way when it when it does come from personal experience like that and it's 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 too bad that you have to go to that level for it to be heard but i think also it's 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 effective on several levels um and i think you know from the white person perspective they're probably proud of themselves for like not assuming that you're married and not assuming that they all that you know, like I've been in situations where it's like, oh, well, does your husband this? And it's like, why are you assuming I'm married? And that could be for any race, but I think there's just this lag of understanding. Um, there's generally some sort of intention that's good, but then it's like overcorrecting and then being like, oh, all, all people from this certain race or this class or this background are going to be like this and and not understanding how to how to talk to people and I don't know, maybe show how down they are or something. It's, it's, uh, there's so much education that needs to be done and there's so much that, that people need to do to actually put themselves in, in someone else's position rather than making their own assumptions and judgments. Correct. Yeah. And, and I think that's our responsibility too, um, to, to take those moments. I could have left that doctor and or you know and my husband and what would have moved on and schedule another appointment in a year but i had to call him you know i had to have that conversation that you're wrong here's actually statistics that say that it's not a black drug issue i've actually you know was in denver with a lot of my colleagues and they didn't look like me and they were having a good time right so I mean, you know, I've let's had, be I've never but no of course i have and everyone i know has <laughs> not yeah. right yeah so but so there is an opportunity to do that and that's that's what we're doing how did he respond by the way i think you said it was a male he doctor apologized. Oh, okay. he apologized but he did at first 
he really believed what he said. And he was kind of giving me his, why what he said was true. And I said, that's not true. And you just put something in, in my son's conscious and subconscious that wasn't there. Yeah. Like you actually caused damage. You introduced marijuana to him, not the kids on, at his school. Right. right. Yeah. So he apologized. After a while, it sounds like, but at least. Yeah. And, it, and that's another thing that's tough too. It's like, if, if, if correction isn't happening, people don't know to do better but how much emotional tax do you have to pay in that? Over and over and over, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I, 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 every time I correct people, I would say 30% of the time it's received like super well and 70% of the time there's a lot of pushback and defensiveness. And that's from my own white self, not having to have lived this entire lifetime of racial trauma. So that, that emotional vulnerability that you put out there how do you keep going back I guess how, what what does it take for you to, to keep having the strength to do that because I, I can I can't imagine having to correct that after all the all the marginalization and all of the mistreatment then having to speak up and maybe get yelled at it's survival yeah so you know, just like animal instinct, you do what you have to do to survive. Yeah. And that's a part of survival. That's a part of getting from survival to thriving. Um, and, you know, I'm a strong woman of faith. I definitely lean on my faith and God um, for restoration and peace and direction around it. Um, but I live my life through in, in the way of purpose. And so um, that the true beyond just being a, a citizen and, and um, a community member and a neighbor, you know, my profession, I'm sure integrates this work because it's key. It's directly aligned. Yeah. Um, and my community work that I do is, you know, I bring that perspective to it. Um, so where I've been blessed to have platforms and to be able to help influence organizations that touch people um, I do it in that way. And in, in that way, it's fulfilling and not only, not just draining. Right. So, but it's hard. It, it is, it's survival. It's, I don't feel like I have a choice um, to do the, to do that work and have these conversations and the compounding effect. With that said, being close, I'm not a clinician, but I do know that has effect on my life. And, you know, I know that has an effect on my life expectancy. Um, that the stress and even gearing up to have the conversation um, is doing something internally that will have an effect. Um, and so being aware of that consciously makes it tough sometimes because um, keeping it in each you and then exerting the energy to kind of confront it also, um, you know, creates maybe some health outcomes that, you know, could come up at some point in time, right? So trying to be as holistic in my life to manage that with my, my spiritual um, well-being as well as my physical well-being is a key part of that. It's so important. And I, I did an interview with a woman named Crystal McCreary, and I, I talk about this all the time, but she's a yoga and mindfulness uh, educator in New York. And she, she, she was quoting someone else, but I'll just quote the way she said it to me because she couldn't remember exactly where she heard it from. And it's kind of like not just one person said it, but 
for what, for white people to think about whenever you lean into your discomfort, particularly about race, that frees up the space for someone else to pull away from their discomfort. So, so I think it's such a beautiful way to think about it. Like, Oh, does it hurt you? Is it make you guess what? Like, you know, black and indigenous people in this country have that all day, every day. So you can take, you can take on, you can share some of that burden by leaning into that discomfort and that frees up. It's, it's an, think of it in an altruistic way. If you'd like to, you, you taking on that energy takes it away from someone else. And, and as you're saying, I mean, the health, the health outcomes of chronic inflammation and being chronically in stress drive, <clears throat> stress mode, that's really bad. That causes chronic inflammation that causes more obesity and diabetes and COVID bad outcomes. It's, there's so much that, <clears throat> excuse me, that it directly impacts. It's not just emotionally stressful. It actually has physical impacts down the line. Excuse me. <clears throat> so on that note, talk to me about earn. I'd love to hear more about that work that you're doing and the health sure. either one or both. Okay. So earn is a new um, organization that I've co-founded with two other founders. Um, it's called the executive action response network. And it was birthed out of the time that we're in post George Floyd. Um, several of my co-founders and I were in an executive leadership program together at uh, Carnegie Mellon um, for black executives. And ultimately the mission of that program is to change the trajectory of um, leadership um, in the Pittsburgh region uh, to be more inclusive and to elevate black executives. So we've known each other and had gone through that program last year. And um, then we started just talking more and more during this time and really um, felt that it was necessary to have the black leadership perspective shared in our region. Um, we have less than 1% black executives in this region. Um, and uh, we felt that the senior leadership, middle, higher, upper middle management, you know, um, voice is typically silent during this time. Um, we, the, George Floyd isn't our first murder, right? And we had Antoine Rose, unfortunately, a young kid in our region um, last year. And uh, we have many other names that we, we I can definitely list, right? And, and overall in this country, we haven't had the black leadership voice <laughs> at the table. So we came together and uh, we created EARN. And EARN is designed to one, have that voice at the table, respond to the reaction that corporate America has had um, as far as engaging their black workforce and really expecting their black workforce to come up with the solutions to the problems that they frankly didn't exist in the institutions they didn't create. Um, and, um, you know, but, you know, commit to statements and commit to multi-million dollar and even billion dollar investments in black communities. And um, with that said, we had this culmination in Pittsburgh where we had that exact, that report that I mentioned to you. Um, then we had the pandemic and the disparities that were called out around black people contracting the virus at higher rates, black people dying at higher rates. And then we had the murder of George Floyd. And um, while we're seeing our young people for the most part out there on the front lines, protesting, getting rubber bullets um, thrown at them, really fighting for their lives, um, essentially the future that they're not willing to accept 
they want to create a new one, they want a different one that many of us have contributed to and ready to inherit, uh, pass down to them, they're not willing to accept it. And, and so Ern is saying, we're not willing to accept it. We're in your institutions. We have a voice. We are valued. We're undervalued. Um, and here's some strategies, some concrete things that you can do, institutions, um, to do something about it. And why corporate America is because they are a microcosm of racism. Their institutions have policies, procedures, and practices that um, you know kind of feed the beast of institutional racism. Mm -hmm. And um, acknowledging that is key, but doing something about that is even more important. So you know we have um, sent a letter to our leadership in this region. Uh, we also expect to send letters to the board of directors, board chairs of uh, major corporations in our region. Uh, we are looking for increased um, acknowledgement of this, that we have a framework that we've developed that incorporates anti-racism training that we're promoting throughout the organizations, um, partnership around talent acquisition for key strategic roles of black executives, increasing their supplier diversity spend. Um, you know, we have multi-billion dollar budgets for for supplier diversity with less than 3%, in many cases, 5% going to African-American businesses. We want that to change um, and increase that in a short amount of time. We need tan tangible changes um, with, the, with the idea that we are professionals. We are, have business acumen. We have strategy, um, strategic skills. We have relationships and we can help these institutions, those that are really willing to do what is necessary. We also want to support our black colleagues, um, our diversity and inclusion um, professionals. Not all of them are black, but many of them are, are black um, professionals um, who have limited resources, limited staff, real, you know, very limited commitment. Up until now, they weren't even expected to address racism. Um, and now they are expected to be the, the answer and have the strategies and, and everything rolled out. Exactly, check the box. And so we're saying they need the support. And there's some things that your black colleagues can't say in your institution that we as a third party um, that represents them, their voices, that incorporates their voices into these next steps, we can provide you, right? There's, there's little risk to us as a third party, but for your colleagues, if you expect them to really be transparent with you when you can fire them, not promote them, you know, apply even, you know, harsher glass ceiling on them, um, that's unrealistic if you expect that. So we want to be a resource to our region. We want a better future for us as professionals, but we also want a better future for our kids and the next generation. And so that's what EARN is about. And how have you been getting the word out? Like what's, what, what have you? Yes, so we have gotten um, a lot of, we sent the, the information. Um, we hired a, a communications firm to help us get the word out. And um, so locally, so far the tribute, Trip Reviewing, um, Trip Live has picked up the story. Next, Pittsburgh, the Business Times. Um, we have other calls um, every day um, for folks who want to interview us, radio stations, and then uh, our networks nationally. So we have others who have relationships with other publications across the country, national publications. So many folks are getting the word out there in our network. So um, we started with our Black network across the region. We thought that was important for them to know we, what we were doing, give them a heads up, um, get their support, mm -hmm. and uh, let them know that their CEOs would be receiving these letters um, um, from EARN. And um, so that's pretty much, I mean, and very quickly, 
the word of mouth is spread. Um, you know, people are talking about it in their boardrooms, in their um, little, yeah, amongst their circles. Um, the responses have been interesting, Jill. Um, you know, I, I heard from a variety of, of colleagues, um, black colleagues and professionals in the region that they felt the letter and the language in the letter was very strong, too strong. We should, you know, we don't want to basically scare um, our white leaders that we need their help and we need them to continue to support our, our initiatives in the region, um, to continue to regard us as colleagues and that um, the language in the letter um, could basically have caused them to, to say, you know what, no, we're not taking any demands. You, mm -hmm. you got our statements and our million dollar commitments to organizations, stop, at, you know, stop asking for stuff and we're not helping you. In fact, we're gonna take back what we already promised you. Yeah. Um, and so the pressure that, it really spoke to the pressure that black professionals feel in the organization. I, I heard a lot of fear, a lot of concern for retaliation in some kind of way from our white leadership, our white executives in our region. And um, so it's been, a, uh, although not surprising, I can tell you it's, it has been disheartening to, um, to hear that um, concern um, for fear, for livelihood, for loss of income, for, you know, there's a lot with that. Um, and the fact, and that tells me, and it should tell our region, our nation, the responsibility that these corporations um, that benefit from our intellectual property, that benefit from our sweat equity, that benefit from um, everything that we provide, our, our dollar as customers have a responsibility to respond and assure that um, by having a voice as a black person, you will not be retaliated against. And in fact, putting action to that by taking on some of the recommendations that we put out there. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in that because there's so much of, of racism. I, I think what a lot of what a lot of white people don't realize is that as this racism is so systemic, it's in the air, it's in the water, it's in everything, it gets internalized by everyone. And so there's this like fear of like, don't upset the beast, the beast being white, the white power, the white supremacy that went, and, and for anyone listening who doesn't, hasn't heard the term white supremacy culture, I'm not talking about people in the KKK, that is, that is like intentional white supremacy, but white supremacy is kind of the, I also heard white body supremacy recently um, from uh, Resma um, Menek, Menekem, I think is how you pronounce his last name. Um, it's the, just the, the way that our culture is designed to keep white bodies in a position of power. So, so it gets internalized and there's this like, I've made it maybe, and I, I, I'm not black obviously, so I can't say for sure, but it's like, I've gotten this far. This is a dangerous place for me to be if there is retribution or if there's backlash yes. and I could lose, like you were saying, I could lose my job. Um, and like, maybe if we're just nicer about it and I, I, people, people have suggested to me as well, like my, my whole curriculum and the name of this podcast is, is conscious anti-racism. Um, it's, it's, and people didn't know what anti-racism even meant a few months ago. And it was like, I felt this pressure to, to make it sort of more palatable, but I don't, that's not what, the, that's the opposite of what we want to do, but it's a balance. There's like a, a push and pull with it. It is. I mean, you don't want to scare people away, but this time has to be different. Yeah. This time has to be different. You know, the, the, where COVID and being home and being more present met 
you know, eight minutes and 46 seconds on a black man's neck by a police officer, we cannot possibly think that our language and the way we approached and our strategies and our appeasement and our, you know, um, fragility has has the same consideration. You know, that moment called for something great, very different. And so, yes, language is more direct. You're, you know, the storytelling is necessary. The, you know, the accountability, the, the call for transparency, the, you know, you can't forget this moment. We're not going to allow that because you shouldn't, right? This is about well-doing so that we can have a well-being. Yeah. And, um, and that's what this is about. Um, and I think, you know, if our white colleagues realize that we'll work with them in it, um, which Earn is all prepared to do, and I think, and your work is prepared to do, that um, we can get it done. But their commitment is necessary um, for that, and so that's what we're we're asking for. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you've had such a good response. And I think always, you know, if if, if it's if you're not ruffling some feathers, you're not doing enough, and you're not pushing the. You've got to push some buttons to actually make change. So I think that's also important to note. Um, um, I love so much that you've, that you've said, I'm like writing down all of, all of your, your, <laughs> your quotes here, because I think you said so many, so many um, insightful things. Um, what, what, what takeaway um, do you want people to have listening to, to this episode of this podcast? Um, whether it's white people, whether it's black people, what do you think is important for people to know about this moment? I really encourage everyone to do their own self audits and that goes across race, age, um, profession. Look at your own self, do your own self audit. Who are you spending your money with? Who are you promoting? Are they aligned with this work of equity for for everyone? Um, Are they aligned with being anti-racist or very conscious of their bias? Are they taking action in their own businesses and their own networks to do the same? And adjust when you find out the truth. You know, if you're, if you know that you're working with a supplier and your corporation um, and they're not aligned with your values uh, in this work, then they need to go. There's a vendor that can supply that that is aligned with you, yeah. right? Set, be very clear on your on who you want to align with, and make that show in how you spend your money and your time, and your resources. So that's a call to action. I think we can all take yeah. um, is our own self audits and and being clear about that. And and um, we're all different, so you're going to do it in a very different way than I'm going to do it. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it, right? And even thinking about your own network, like, like if you need an attorney, don't ask your white friend because they're going to refer a white, most likely going to refer a white attorney to you, but ask if there's a, a, a attorney of color, a black attorney that you could work with, or, you know, you have to be explicit about it. You have to be intentional about it because otherwise. Intentional. Exactly. Otherwise you'll go back into your habits where people are yeah. creatures of habits, right? So um, the intentionality of our way forward is going to be the differentiator. Yeah, that's so important. That's so important. Thank you so much. 
Uh, all right. Well, Jessica, thank you so much. Jessica Brooks, the CEO and executive director of the Pittsburgh Business Group on Health. She started uh, the EARN organization, the Health Desk. We did, there's so much we didn't get into. Maybe we'll have to do a whole second episode. Um, but there's so much work you're doing in terms of patient advocacy um, in the healthcare system. Um, but you were, you were doing so much to make the world a better place. And, and uh, I am very grateful to, to know you and have gotten connected to you and uh, look forward to seeing what comes next for you. Same here. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you.